The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Um, we're going to begin um, tonight. It's going to be a little bit different than last night. I'm going to talk. I'm setting the timer right now for 20 minutes. Um, give it a little bit of review. Get us into, okay, how does the gospel then actually begin to transform and change our lives and change our work life in particular, our vocational life in particular. Um, and then I'm going to pray and I'm going to walk off of here. And then we're going to have a panel discussion um, with members of Park Church who, who serve in varying vocations. Um, and, uh, and Neil is going to ask a series of questions, some of which were submitted to you, um, submitted by you last night, some of which um, we've come up with over the last couple of weeks as we've thought through um, what we thought would be helpful tonight in discussing some of these things. Um, and so I want to uh, start by mentioning some books, and I want to pray, and then I will talk quickly. Okay? Um, first, uh, I mentioned this book last night. I really cannot recommend it too highly. Um, if you are, are looking for anything to read on the topic of faith and work, um, faith and vocation, um, this is the best book I know of um, in dealing with that issue and dealing with that topic. So if you do not have a copy of this book, um, I would strongly advise you to pick one up. We have them in the back. Um, you can also um, get them on Amazon, uh, get them for the Kindle. Um, it's by Pastor Tim Keller, um, pastor in uh, New York City. Um, we often refer to him as Yoda. Uh, and um, he has uh, been extremely influential in shaping not just our understanding of faith and work, but our understanding of, of ministry in the local church and the mission of the local church. Um, but this book is, uh, again, can't speak too highly of it. Um, the other, uh, uh, there's a ton of books I could recommend. Um, the other book that deals specifically with vocation that I want to recommend um, is this book. It's called Visions of Vocation by a guy named Steve Garber. Um, he is, uh, he, he writes a little, um, if Tim Keller, he, Tim Keller is going to quickly get to the ground um, in his book. This book is going to deal a little bit more philosophically about the nature of vocation um, and what, what vocation has the possibility of looking like. Um, it's a, a very engaging book. I would recommend this book as well. Both of these books dealing um, very much specifically with the topic of personal vocation. Um, although both of them will hit on a larger topic of culture, which we hit upon last night. I'm going to hit on it again um, here in a few minutes. Um, the last two books I want to mention to you um, deal specifically with the larger topic of culture. Um, if at the end of the day God has ordained that, his, his purposes are that the earth would be flooded with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That is a cultural promise. It's a cultural statement. Um, that, that this world will be flooded with things that, with lives that, with cultures that reflect his nature, his character, his goodness, and his glory. Um, and so as we think about the topic of vocation, you should not go very far into that conversation without thinking about the larger narrative of Scripture, which, which is, is, is all about um, how is God going to accomplish that purpose? Flooding the earth, flooding every culture with his presence, his goodness, his glory, his beauty. Um, these two books uh, take different, differing viewpoints on how to go about um, pursuing that end. And we carry both on our bookshelves upstairs. And it's because I don't think that they're at odds with one another. I think they come at the same question from different angles that are really, really helpful. Um, the first one is called Culture Making by Andy Crouch. Um, uh, Andy Crouch is actually going to be here in the fall. We're going to have another symposium that's going to deal with a lot of these issues. Um, and Andy Crouch is going to come and speak to us at that symposium in November. This book is excellent. Everything he's written is excellent. Um, but I can recommend this book highly in terms of thinking about how our culture is actually formed, how are they actually changed as we embed ourselves within the, within the nature of culture. Um, this book is, um, is a very, very 
you know, creative cover. Um, and uh, it actually has a great cover. I lost mine. Um, and it is, uh, the title of the book is To Change the World. It's by a sociologist, theologian, historian. I don't know how to describe this guy. He, he works at UVA. Um, and his name is James Davidson Hunter. He's written a number of really, really helpful books. Um, this, this book is incredibly difficult to read. And if you can wade through it, and one of the most rewarding things I think that you'll read, particularly as you think about the church, as you think about what does it mean to be a Christian, um, embedded in the varying uh, occupations and vocations represented in this room, how do we pursue the ends that God has called us to, and thinking about um, the larger aim of seeing culture reflect God's glory, God's, God's um, name. We, we like to use the phrase here, faithful presence, um, that that is our call within the city, is to be a faithful presence within the city. Um, that phrase is stolen directly from James Davidson Hunter. It is the posture that he calls the church to have um, within any and all cultures, all cities, that sort of thing. So um, I just wanted to throw some books out there and recommend them. There are a ton others. If you want shorter books, if you want books that are great for small, small group studies, those kinds of things, um, I've got a giant stack on my desk, desk upstairs, and I've read through most of them in the last two weeks, so they're fresh. Um, and, and I would love to recommend anything. If you're looking for something in particular, um, come grab me uh, after tonight or during a break, and, I, and I'd love to, love to talk through those things. I've now used one-fourth of my time. Let's pray. <clears throat> so, Father, you are uh, you're the God who did not simply create disembodied souls to, to relate to you and to emote about you. God, you created bodies with hands and minds and you created mountains and you created soil and you created coffee beans and wheat and you created um, uh, ore that, that if it's mined properly can, can produce jewelry and can produce steel and can produce um, uh, businesses. God you, God, you created men and women who, who think creatively about how to take, um, uh, take, take wealth and, and reinvest it so it produces even more wealth. Um, you're God who made all of those things um, and your word is very, very clear. Each and every one of those things you created for your glory. That there is no particularly holy calling that pursues your glory while everyone else serves that calling. No, um, you've called all of us. You, you've sent all of us into this world to bear witness to who you are with the gifts and the wiring and the contacts that you've, that you've placed around us and in us. And so, God, I pray that we would not dishonor you as, as Mrs. Sayers said last night by making bad tables. But God, that whatever we set our minds to, whatever we set our bodies to, and whatever context we find ourselves in, even maybe particularly when we find them incredibly frustrating, God, that we would give ourselves to the task at hand. Um, not for our own glory, not for our own renown, not even for our own wealth, but God, for your glory, for your name, for your renown first, and that others might thrive, that others, others might enjoy your good gifts, that others might see something of what you're like in the work that we do. So call us to these things. Help um, all of our vocations to be shaped and defined by what you've done for us in Jesus. That the bedrock of who we are would not be our own accomplishments, our own wealth, but that the, the unimaginable richness of your love for us that you sing over us to do us good, that you have cleansed us of our sin, that you call us sons and daughters, and that you've made us to bear your image in the world. So call us to that tonight. In your name we pray, amen. So we begin where we began last night, um, but do so in a slightly different angle.
Um, we began, uh, uh, actually, I, I want to touch on what we hit upon Sunday, after, Sunday morning and Sunday night, as we begin to talk about uh, God's ultimate vision, His ultimate plan, His ultimate promise for, for what He's going to do with this world. His ultimate vision is not, again, disembodied um, humans on clouds um, playing harps. No, no, His, his end game that, that He's already laid out for us is a world, a created world made new. But not made new as though it's brand new, but made new, like, like absolutely renewed. Taking, um, taking this world, cleansing it of sin, cleansing it of brokenness, cleansing it of selfishness, and then flooding it with God's glory, God's goodness, God's beauty. To, to see all of this created order, rocks and grass and stones and coffee and steaks and beer and businesses, to see all of it filled up, not with sin, but with glory, with beauty, with goodness, with majesty, with holiness. That's what he's declared his end game is. That is his goal. That's always been his goal. That hasn't changed. That hasn't shifted. That's not a new thing. That is what he's intended from day one. From the moment he opened his mouth and spoke into existence creation, his goal all along has been a world, a global garden city filled with image bearers who love him, who trust him, who delight in him, and who wield their lives unto him, his glory, his name, name his renown, and by doing so, serve and love one another. That's God's plan. It's, it, that is his promise, that that's what he's going to bring about. It's guaranteed. And, and, and if that's true, and that God has therefore made us as human beings, first and foremost, to love him, to trust him, and then two, to wield the gifts that God's given us, to, to wield the, the raw materials of creation in such a way that we create culture, that we create beauty, that we create goodness, that we create jobs, that we create wealth, that we create food, all unto Him, that has massive implications. It, it means that spreadsheets matter. God cares about them. And I say that because I can't think of anything that I like less and spreadsheets. But God is passionately committed to good spreadsheets. It means that home loans matter. God is passionate about well-ordered home loans. It means that tables matter. God is passionately committed to God-glorifying tables. It means coffee beans matter. It means that the, the internet matters. It, it means that well-built homes matter. It means that, that, that the well-crafted jewelry and beautiful works of art, God is passionately committed to those things. They're not an afterthought. They're not a secondary thing. God's not going like, who really cares about art? Who really cares about spreadsheets? Who, care, who really cares about the internet? No, He is passionately committed to a world in which all of those things honor Him and all of those things reflect Him. Which means, I don't care what you did today, but it mattered. God was concerned about it. And, and, and the, the reality is, is, as reflected in a number of the questions that were submitted a lot of you don't. A lot of you go to work day in and day out and you just don't care. And, and, and here's the problem. God does. Please hear me. I, I don't care if you spent the whole day making overpriced coffee for, for people who are willing to pay for overpriced coffee. God cares about that cup of coffee. He's passionate about it glorifying Him and reflecting His nature in the world. 
It matters. And my hope for all of us is that whatever, maybe your, your, your entire job, maybe it's the entire way that you spend your day, maybe it's just certain aspects of your work or the particular vocation you find yourself in, God cares about it. I remember numerous conversations with my wife um, as we talked about um, the most mundane aspects of just life at home and raising kids. And, and, and especially when they get to that age where they love to take Cheerios and throw them. Like they have a little tray and you dump some Cheerios out because that will occupy them for approximately seven minutes. Um, they'll eat the Cheerios, they'll gum them down until they can swallow them. Um, and then they suddenly learn this beautiful game that they can take and grab very awkwardly this handful of Cheerios and they can throw them off their tray. And I remember the, the insanity of having to literally get down on hands and knees because um, our vacuum cleaner had a, had a habit of not cleaning um, Cheerios but actually um, destroying them and shooting them across the kitchen, and so the only way to get them off the floor was to get down on hands and knees and pick up the Cheerios, and how mundane that was, and how frustrating that was, and like, how much time do we spend right now in this universe picking up peas or Cheerios that have been thrown onto the ground, but it matters, it reflects, even to this child, and even to our own heart, the nature and the character of God, and I, I dare say that what you did today was probably not more mundane than picking up Cheerios and, and green peas, which are disgusting, especially once they get smashed. It matters. God is committed to these things. And, and this is why Paul commands us to do your work as unto the Lord. Not just unto your boss, but as though God himself had ordained that you work in the vocation you're in and that he cared about the product. Because guess what? He does. He absolutely does. And so this is what we've been called to, and this is the means by which God has ordained that he intends to see Revelation 21 fulfilled. He wants to see a world flooded with his glory, flooded with his beauty, flooded with his goodness, um, as image bearers faithfully obey him, love him, trust him, worship him, as they raise up families and, and cluster together in the family called the church, and see, um, and see both children born to them and children born again into that family, and then wield all of their gifts for the, for the glory of God and the flourishing of the world. And then last night we mentioned that there's a massive problem right here, right? That we've... Um, God has, uh, has become to us in our ways of thinking because we've been deceived, because we've been lied to, and because we desire to be our own kings. He has become to us not good, not trustworthy, um, not someone that we want to reflect in the world. But we still do what human beings do. So we still build tables, but we still make coffee, we still work on spreadsheets, we still, up, still have to somehow figure out a way to pick up peas and, and Cheerios, but we find ourselves now doing all of those things in a bent way, in a way in which we, we seek to serve our own ends, in which we seek to serve our own aims, um, in which we, we make work a means to, to make much of ourselves, or a means to gain pleasure or control or wealth or serve our own ends. And that now we look at a world flooded with culture. There's, there is a culture that has flooded this earth. But it's not the culture that is the knowledge of the glory of God. No, no, it's this chaotic culture, this haphazard culture, this idolatrous culture that floods the earth with our image, our name, our renown, our violence, our kingdoms. That's a problem. 
And it's a problem that begins with us individually. It begins as we are, are plagued by these idols, are plagued by ambition that's not spent on God's glory and the flourishing of other people, but it's spent on ourselves. And what that, um, but but that, that personal thing that we've got to deal with, it also works itself out culturally and corporately in, in larger structures within our world that, that, are not, that have now been deeply corrupted um, by, by human beings that don't want to worship God and instead want to worship themselves. And through it all, God in His kindness and grace has shot even that through with goodness. Um, that, that's a really interesting rabbit trail that I would love to chase down. Um, I, I hit upon it a little bit on Sunday as we talked about how the glory of, the glory of kings will be brought into this city. That there is a world bent on rebellion against God, and yet in God's providence, um, men and women who don't like God, don't love God, don't trust God, still do really, really good things. Things that reflect His goodness, things that reflect His beauty, and not any of those things will be wasted in the end. But I don't, I, I don't have time to chase down that rabbit trail. Because I have, to, I have to expound two chapters of 1 John to you. So, if you have a Bible, um, I want you to turn to 1 John. I just want to point out one uh, of what I think is one of the most telling and beautiful um, implications of what God has done for us in Jesus in the light of our sin. Um, and as you turn there, I don't want us to take for granted tonight that the, the reality that what God could have done, what He would have been tr- totally and completely justified in doing, is to wipe everything clean. To kill all of us and be done and start over. He he would have been absolutely justified to come and to say, you're in rebellion against me. Um, You're you're, you're absolutely destroying this creation that I love and have made to reflect who I am. Um, I'm just going to be done with you and we're just going to end this thing. He could have been completely justified to do that. That's not what he did. But what he did is he sent Jesus, um, as John will tell us, to be the propitiation for our sin. So, um, if you will read to me, uh, read with, not read to me, I'm going to read to you. You listen. Um, first four verses of 1 John, I think are the, um, they might be my f- favorite four verses in the Bible, and so we're not going to read them because I'll talk about them. So, starting in verse 5, this is the message. He's talking about this word of life that's been delivered to them, this eternal word that has been given to them and that they have proclaimed to us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So point number one in my two-point, three-minute sermon. Point number one is simply this, that God has come and though all of us are rebels, all of us have taken the good gifts of God and wielded them as weapons, as rebellious weapons against his purposes, he comes and in Jesus, he cleanses us of our sin. Jesus dies the death that we deserve to die. This is not just religious hocus pocus. It's not just something we sing about in our hymns. It has everything to do with our work. You don't have to earn anything with him. 
He doesn't care about how many raises you got. That doesn't, that doesn't justify you in front of him. Um, you don't have to be the best at your job in order for you to be justified before him. Um, you don't have to, have to build the largest company imaginable um, in order for you to be accepted and loved by him. No, he freely and on account of nothing in you loves you. God loves you. He approves of you. Dare I say, the Bible, the Bible actually holds out that he delights in you. Delights in you. And not because you've done anything. You've done nothing to earn it. He sings over you with the delight of a father, over, over his children, a perfect father. Maybe very different than the father you experienced. He delights in you, but not because you've done anything, but because he has freely chosen, decided, I set my love on these people. And Jesus comes, and though we deserve death, he dies in our place. He dies a traitor's death outside of the city, which is exactly what we deserve. He dies in our place. So that if we confess our sins, John tells us, he's not only faithful to forgive our sins, he's just to forgive our sins. Think about that for a moment. Think about the claims that John is making there. If he were to refuse to forgive your sins, he would be unjust. This is the good news of the gospel. And again, it's not something we just sing about on Sundays. It's not just something that we want to believe in our hearts and then go on about the rest of our life. It actually utterly transforms the way that we do our work. And I want to show you how, and then I'll get out, then I'll get out of here. Look with me at chapter 2. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Um, and I want to jump down to verse 7. He says, Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you that is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So, so John says, and this is really interesting, he, he, he came to this church in Ephesus, he preached the gospel. That Jesus um, lived the life we couldn't live, this is my summary, died the death we deserve to die, and was raised on the third day, um, that he is Lord, and, and he calls them to believe in it. But he says that right from the beginning, he told them a commandment. What was the commandment? Love one another. John's the same one that in his gospel um, uh, accounts for. Jesus' kind of final sermon to his disciples where he says, um, this, is, this is what I'm commanding you to do. Let you, that you would love one another. That, that from the very, very beginning, everywhere the gospel was preached, I think this is the implication of what John is saying. Wherever the gospel is preached, the very first thing, the, the very thing that he commanded people to do in the light of what God had done for them in Jesus is a radical reorientation of their life. 
Not just to love God, but to love people. That there's something about what God has done for us in Jesus that liberates us from this slavery to serve ourselves and liberates us to make our lives about the glory of God and the good of one another. The gospel comes and tells you, you don't, have to, you don't have to make your job about glorifying yourself. God has promised to glorify you. You don't have to make your job about earning someone's love. God himself has said, I freely love you. You don't have to make your job, your vocation, about somehow working enough so that you can be accepted. God says, no, in Jesus, I freely accept you. In other words, everything that you, could, that you can think you might find within a vocation... He says, I give you quite apart from that vocation. I give it to you freely. And the result is, your vocation now, your job now, what you spend most of your day doing, is, is, is free from having to be about you. You're free now to, to live out this command that you might love one another. So you might make good tables to glorify a God who's liberated you and loved you. You might make good tables because this table will serve a family who will eat dinner at this table and share beautiful, glorious moments of God's greatness and His goodness. You can spend your day scouring spreadsheets, but because, uh, not, not because you want to earn anything before God, but because, because God has ordered a world and He's loved you and He has shepherded you and He's cleansed you. And he's called you to do these spreadsheets because they serve, I'll be honest, they they serve somebody. But I I have no idea how do you get, in a sermon, how do you get to that. But but this is what the gospel does and how it shapes our work. Which is why the most important thing you need, not just in a worship service on a Sunday, but when you walk into the office at 9 a.m. on a Monday morning, the most important thing you need to remember at that precise moment is that the God of the universe has dealt with your sin. The God of the universe loves you as a father. He sings over you to do you good. That there is nothing, nothing, nothing that you can do today that will make him love you more, accept you more, delight in you more. And now, be free. Lay down your life that others might flourish. So I want to pray, and then we're going to have a panel discussion for us tonight. And so, God, may my brothers and sisters believe these things. May they be owned by these things and defined by these things. May the work that they do day in and day out um, be driven and compelling, not not because they're earning something through their work, but because they know that you already love them and that you've gifted them, you've called them, you've positioned them, at least for today, to wield their gifts, to wield their know-how, to wield who they are, to, to glorify you and to cause others to flourish. So God, remind us tonight, before you remind us of anything else, of the glorious, glorious truth that you love us. You are faithful to forgive our sins and you are just to forgive our sins. In your name we pray, amen. Um, all right, to start out, why don't you guys just go, go through and say your name and what, what kind of work you guys do um, on a regular basis and also how long you've been at Park. How long you've been at Park? Yes, name... How long at Park and what you do hey. for work? Hi, I'm Katie Flynn. I've been at Park for, I think, about five years now. And I am a 
brand manager and marketing at Dish uh, Satellite TV. I'm Riley Flynn. I'm married to Katie. Uh, so yeah, we've been at Parks since fall of '09, and I uh, work for a small tech fund. I'm Erica Heinz, and I've been at Park about five or six years. And currently, I'm a stay-at-home mom to Chloe and this one who's coming. Before that, my career was in corporate HR, and that's where I had spent my whole career before Chloe. I'm Amanda Rodriguez. Um, we've been at Park for about three years now, and I'm a fifth, sixth, and seventh grade teacher at a private Christian school in the city. I'm Tony Julianell. I've been at Park almost four years, and I work for Wells Fargo's mortgage company. Great. Um, so I want to start out with a question that we had last night. And actually, we got several questions that were a variation of this question. Uh, so one person said, I struggle with satisfaction in my job. Serving sacrificially for others is very helpful in making my work meaningful, but how do we deal with the fact that there's still very limited enjoyment? Should we expect work to be a grind for the good of others most of the time? And then someone else who had a modified version of this question, more to the point, what if I don't like my job? So anyone can start. <laughs> they all like their jobs, I mean, apparently. I, I, think, I, I think even when you really like your job, there's parts that you don't like. So I'll just start with, I think work in and of itself is not something that's wholly fulfilling. I think actually work is something that can give us a lot of joy and fulfillment, but ultimately God also uses work to refine us. And part of that refining process is recognize, looking in the mirror and recognizing, oh, I don't like doing this work for this boss because it requires me to submit or it requires me to do something I don't like, like I have to clean the toilet or I have to do the spreadsheet, you know, or whatever it is you have to do. And I think if you look at yourself in the mirror and ask, like, well, why don't I like this? A lot of times what will come back is, oh, it's because I'm not being humble. Oh, it's because – and so that, that's like a refining process, and I think it's a good feedback loop for us. So I would be careful if you're looking for fulfillment in your job. Um, Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm guilty of that. Um, I'll add to that, too. Um, after I'd been working, you know, out of college, um, worked a variety of jobs for several years, I started to discover that, that there was always this hidden life of any job I did. On the surface, you know, it looked fun, it looked appealing, it looked meaningful. But once you got into it, there was always a certain amount of drudgery or just just plain old work. And so that was just a huge lesson for me to kind of realize, you know, whatever I do, because um, people tend to look at teaching as like, oh, you know, you get to change lives and, and all of that. But there's a lot of just flat out work <laughs> involved with it. So it, as Riley said, you know, there's, it's not meant to be completely fulfilling and enjoyable. Okay, that being said, I agree because not every day getting up at 6 a.m. commuting one hour is the most fun time I've ever had. But I think there is such thing as a bad fit as well. And you should, I mean, I think 
you're serving others and that's fulfilling, but we also all have gifts that we're supposed to steward and resources, whether it's your talents, I don't know, anything that if you're not using them at all, I think sometimes like you should consider making a change or if you don't like your job, I think the question is why don't you like it? And you need to dig into that a little bit more because, you know, I think there is a discipline to work and there is a refining that happens, but there's also should be some joy in what you're doing. And I think you should find a place where you can use your gifts for the good of others. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely true. I think, um, you know, striking the balance of where am I, what am I passionate about? Where are my gifts being deployed and where am I being refined? And how's God acting on me through the work that I do? Um, you know, I just go back to maybe, um, you know, the great invitation is come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And the idea being that the circumstance you're in, there is something for you to learn. There is something for you to understand more deeply about who God is. Um, and um, uh, that that um, there is the, the idea of persevering in that has great value. So I think I'd be careful. Uh, I talked to, on a real practical note, I talked to a lot of people who want to come work for our company. And I know in the first couple of minutes, whether they're a fit for, our, for my team in particular, by what they think of the job they have today. So I met with a guy today and I said, how's it going? And he goes, I just think I should love going to work and I don't. And I said, yeah, you're probably not going to love it with me either. Like, we're done. It was a great meeting you, and you should buy your own coffee next time. But uh, so, there, so there, there is an attitude that we bring with us, right? Every time we show up, there's an attitude we bring with us. And that attitude is either an attitude of gratefulness for what God's done on our behalf, or it's an attitude of what's owed to me. And I think we live in a cultural context now where you have been told, and I was told over and over again, you can do anything you want. You can be anything you want. Brian loves to say it's one of the great lies of the last two generations. You can't be anything you want. And, um, and, and you get this sense of, I, I just want to change the world, right? So you hear that a lot. Just go out and change the world, which there's, there's no more narcissistic statement. <laughs> I'm going to change the world. It's narcissism. So, so pushing back against those uh, those things that are kind of ingrained in us from the first time we got a trophy for losing a soccer game <laughs> to, you know, to today. So I don't know if that... Yeah, that's great. Um, <laughs> I feel like I should ask you for a trophy right now. Just forget <laughs> how safe. We're showing up. Um, so pressing in a little bit further in that tension between contentment and discontentment, um, a lot of people ask questions around how do we discern in the midst of that tension. So when should we pursue a different career track? And when should we stay where we are a little bit discontent and just persevere? We still can serve. There are redemptive and, and exciting elements of our job. Um, and how do we discern our heart motivations in the process? This is a personal question to answer. <laughs> I mean, I think it, it's so different for every single circumstance. And I think regardless of if you're discontent or 
you're super happy. I mean, understanding that God is providing for you through that job and he's providing for your families through the jobs that you have, even if you're not happy with getting up and going every day. So I think, yeah, I mean, this is such a cliche answer, but I honestly don't know what else to tell you, except I think you really need to pray about it (laughs) Um, because it's different in every circumstance. And I think your motivations will be revealed through community. And if you are just being self-serving and wanting to change the world and jumping from job to job, or if really you need to make a change. So I'd say too, I, um, exactly. Like the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) What's the rest of the story? Um, I'd encourage you though, to do things slowly. And I think we're all guilty of seeing, you know, the next six months or the next year is the rest of my life. And uh, it might be, I don't know, but probably not. (laughs) Most likely it's not the rest of your life. And um, I I just had a a friend who moved from Denver to Reno, Nevada. Anybody been to Reno, Nevada? Yeah, don't ever go. (laughs) And uh, she called me yesterday and she said, I hate it. I hate it here. I hate the person I work for now. This is the worst decision I've ever made. I have to find a way out now, which is a great trigger for me, right? To just go, well, no, you don't. Like, not now, but it's good you're working through some of this. Now, she might call me in six months and go, wow, it's not nearly as bad as I thought it was. So I just encourage you, as you think through that, don't react to these things. Like to Katie's point, be prayerful and thoughtful. Uh, about it and just understand the season you're in now it's not the rest of your life this is a season in your life I think too um, it's good to discern like is this a theme of discontentment that just keeps following me constantly no matter what season I'm in or is it just a season of discontentment and I think a lot of it is where we're finding our identity if our identity is in our job and Besides our identity in Christ, there's going to be a lot of discontentment, and it's just going to follow you. So no matter, I mean, you could decide, you could switch careers, you could want to be stay-at-home mom, you could want to go back, you could want to start your own business. But if it's not, if it's a theme of discontentment that's following you, it's never going to leave, which is, I mean, we hear that a lot. If you're so discontent in singleness, it's going to lead over into marriage, and then you want the house, and then you want the baby, but it's like everything keeps coming, and it's discontentment that follows. And so if we're called to bear God's image, we're God's image bearers. We're not bearing ourselves. We're not bearing our own image. Then the discontentment could just be a season, and that's when we'll discern. And I think the Lord will be faithful I know the Lord will be faithful to show you, okay, this se- it, it is time for the next season. And I love, too, that like, it's not a forever thing. I remember when I went back to work after having Chloe, I had so much relief. Like, I could do any, well, I can't do anything I want. It's a season. I could decide I could quit my job or I could be a stay-at-home mom. And if I decide to quit my job, which I did, and a stay-at-home mom, I could go back to work. And so it's relieving to know that we're not stuck or we're not called to sit in something forever, that the seasons come and the seasons go, but remembering where our identity is and that we're bearing God's image, we're not bearing ourselves. Yeah, I think, I think in line with that, Garber 
in that book, Visions of Vocation, that, that Brian mentioned, talks about the fact that a, a human life is of inestim, inestimable value. And I think that, and, the, and he goes on, and, and it's in the context of a comment where he's talking about, in order to live in line, we should, we should be living in a way that's deeply congruent with who God created us to be. And I think it's, it's, it's an interesting, nuanced way uh, of approaching this idea that, you know, you should find your perfect calling and that kind of thing. But I, I do think um, he, he, Garber says like, there's a, we should live with a seriousness about our life. And I, I think that's really important. And so I think in the midst of, it's like, who, who did God create me to be? And I think the real problem is when we look in the mirror, we see things that aren't actually true. We see what we'd want to be. We see what other people have told us our whole lives. We see a lot of other things. And so I think, I think we have to be really serious. And there's lots of resources. There's, I mean, you have to live in community that's going to be honest with you and all kinds of things. And, and so there are limits to, to who you were created to be. Um, you know, Kate, Katie played basketball and loved playing basketball, but she's a little short. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm just not that fast. And so, I mean, there are just physical and mental and all kinds of other limitations to the, but, but we should be serious about the context and, and the way we've been created and, and the circumstances into which uh, we have been created. And I think that will, that will kind of guide a lot of that. When you think about what Riley was saying, when you think about the, the great invitation, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, the idea is that I'll learn to live my life the way Jesus would live my life in my place, right? So this idea that there is, a, there is inestimable value to our lives and the, the, this concept of yoked apprenticeship is one that's... It's, it, and I think we read that and we go... Oh, I'll I'll be more you know I'll be more like Jesus was, and that's the idea. But in your context is the idea. So you know, look at it through that lens. That um, whatever I do now, I want to do the way Jesus did. So if Jesus if Jesus was a carpenter and I'm a carpenter, I'd be an amazing carpenter, uh, and and bring glory to Him in the work that I do. So that's great. That's good. Um, so I want to up on something that Brian spoke on uh, last night, and that work is service, and it's also meant to be relational. Um, so most of our jobs, most of the work that we do involves interacting with other people. Um, the reality is we don't always like the other people that we're forced to work with, um, or clients, customers, uh, be it bosses, employers, employees, whatever it is. Um, we had a number of questions surrounding the, uh, the, you know, within the arena of how do we serve those people even when we don't necessarily like them? Um, so what does it look like to demonstrate the humility of Christ, the service of Christ, the, the kindness of God um, when, we, when we work with frustrating people, um, when, we, when we just get tired and, and it can seem really mundane? So what does that look like? <laughs> no, I was just thinking, I work with pre-teenagers. <laughs> and their parents. No. Um, <laughs> Um, so this is, I mean, just the reality of it is, if you're working with someone or working alongside someone who's frustrating you, you know, there's just a chance you don't know the whole story. And um, whenever I'm frustrated with one of my students, I just look at them and I think, okay, this person needs to re-understand the gospel today. And because I, I do teach at a Christian school, it is a, a gift and a privilege that I can 
um, openly profess the gospel and am expected to, to my students. Um, but then when it's more adult to adult interaction, again, I just go back to the gospel that I have to preach the gospel to myself daily that, um, who am I to sit in judgment of this other person? And more often than not, there's some backstory that's leading to the behavior of the frustration that I'm just not aware of. I think too, more often than not, I think when our emotions rise up and we have frustration, I think it's something in our heart. It's not them. And I, I mean, my person, my employee slash boss is Chloe. She's two. And so her behavior is crazy. (laughs) But it's, it's less about her and more about my response. But if you think about it, your coworkers or your boss or whoever it is that's frustrating, why are, why are we like flaring up? What, what is it about them that's causing us to feel that way? And again, are we imaging ourselves or are we imaging God? And so I think it's perfect. Like we have to be putting the gospel on display and it's not about us. We're called to go into the workplace. I'm called to go into my home every day to reteach the gospel, regardless if I'm saying it in words to Chloe or most of us don't get to share the gospel at our workplace freely like you'd get to. Um, but knowing that people are going to be understanding the gospel more by what they're seeing in us. And so the frustration that we feel, it's first about us. It's not about them being an idiot at their job or throwing the peas on the floor. That's my real life. The Cheerios is a real thing. And it is frustrating. Um, So, yeah, I think just checking our hearts. Why are we walking into our workplace every day feeling that way, letting those emotions rise up? So I went out a couple years ago. I was working in a company that was growing really fast. And I went through a period where I had, like, four bosses in three months and two and a half different compensation plans and all this kind of stuff. And I was constantly frustrated because... um, Every boss was just stupid, and <laughs> it was like, but and yes, like that's a hard situation. We all go through those periods, but the reality was like it's it's my own arrogance. Like I I found like I have a hard time working for someone if I can't respect them. But you know, conversations at home with Katie and um, with other friends kind of help. Like that person's been put in charge for whatever reason. Like God. God has set you under that person. And I think a lot of it was just, for me at least, was to recognize how arrogant I am and thinking, like, I could do that guy's job and the guy above him and the guy above him. Like, I could do all their jobs way better than any of them could. Um, and and that's that's pride and arrogance, and there's no grace in that at all. And, it, and it's actually not even it, – it, it, I couldn't even interact with them, you know? So I totally missed the opportunity to actually build a relationship with those people. Instead, I was just frustrated. So I, I think I think it really you really do have to realize like oh what's God trying to do in my own heart in this I, I really resonate with that. I think also there are just people that are really hard and probably I don't know wherever you guys work everyone recognizes like that person is really difficult and I think the gospel tells us, hey, people that are easy to love, everyone loves. And people that are hard to love, that's our opportunity to share the gospel with those people. And they might 
you know, be an outcast or have something that makes dealing with them very difficult. But if you're able to love them and even, you know, confess that, hey, confess to the Lord, hey, I hate this person. I do not want to see them. And if I see them in the hall, I'm going to look the other way, not say hi, whatever, you know, and try to forgive the situation, have grace with that person. I mean, you can see a lot of change happen and it's really powerful. So to see those situations as opportunities as well to just be Christ in that situation. Real practically for me, there's a there's an author named Patrick Lencioni who um, I thoroughly enjoy. And I can't remember, Brian, you might remember what he calls this, the phenomenon. Um, but he talks about the benefit of the doubt. He says, you know, when, when I screw up, um, I expect that people will give me the benefit of the doubt. And when I, when I make a mistake, um, I expect that they'll look at me and they'll know that I have good character and they'll know that I want to do good work and I try hard. And, and, hey, I might have something going on in my life and I want the benefit of the doubt. When somebody else screws up, um, I tend not to give them the benefit of the doubt. I give myself the benefit of the doubt, right? But when somebody else screws up, I go, oh, that person is fill in the blank. That person is lazy. That person is unconstructive. That person um, isn't smart. That per- whatever it is. And um, so for me, that's just a really practical, when I feel myself going there, um, I just try to think about, okay, why am I so fast to give myself an out um, and so quick to jump to conclusions about um, actions of others. That's good. Um, switching gears a little bit, a lot of times we'll hear the phrase work-life balance. Um, to what extent is that a helpful distinction or tension there? And to the extent that it is helpful, how do we navigate through this work-life balance? So um, I'm of the opinion that like we, we talk about work-life balance, like it's a place where you arrive. Like all of a sudden you've figured out, these are the number of hours I'm going to sleep every day. These are the number of hours I'm going to spend with my spouse, my family, extended family, you know, all these things. Like I just, I, th- I think it's crap <laughs> um, <laughs> because life doesn't work that way. Like life changes. Once you figure it out for one day, the next day something's different and you move into a new season of life or you get sick or you get a new boss or whatever happens. And so I think somebody, when asked this question, somebody answered and it was such a, I think such a brilliant answer basically said, it's all, it's actually all about tension. And, um, I'm not a musician, but you know, guitars require the perfect amount of tension to play a note and you're constantly tuning it. It goes out of tune. And so, he, he, this this man, the CEO of a, of a company, talked about how really work life balance is about having the right amount of weight or the right amount of tension on either side to always tune you back. So there are weeks where you'll spend too much time at work, but you need a, a wife at home who's who's strong enough and saying like, "Hey, I really need your help. You need to come back this way." And then there are weeks where you you drop the ball at work. You know, you disappoint a coworker or something, and and you just they're going to pull you back. You're constantly going to be pulled back and forth, but it's living a life where there's kind of an, a gracious understanding on either side, so you constantly can retune, you know, by the grace of God, so that you can play as many good notes as you can.
Yeah, what, what Riley said. <laughs> uh, I, I, would, I was going to say the same thing. Is this idea of tensions. And if, one thing, if you don't have tension, it means you're completely out of balance somewhere. Um, and that the idea of work-life balance is just a, I think it's just a dichotomous view of the world that isn't real. So I would say, um, you know, uh, I had breakfast with a guy a few weeks ago who named his company Convergence, and he's an architect. Um, he built the, the stadium that the pirates lose in. Is that how it was described? <laughs> um, brilliant guy. And he said, uh, we asked him, why, why did you name the company Convergence? And he said, because I think, he, he used the example, and I don't know if anybody here is old enough to remember, these old projection TVs that had three big bulbs, right, a red, green, and a blue, and they would converge on the screen. And if they got out of whack, you had to kind of reset the convergence so the picture would be clear. And, and he used the example of you've got um, work, family, and community, and church, and all that stuff, and they need to converge well. And um, um, I think that is the same idea as tensions, finding these right tensions. But um, when I hear work-life balance, I just want to go, yeah, that you, you're not looking at work correctly or life correctly. I would say, so you're completely wrong. Um, <laughs> So there, there is black and white. It's there just, is. <laughs> you're right or you're wrong. Yes. Um, so, but more look at what are your vocational callings and how do you, there is tension in trying to honor those vocational callings simultaneously. And, and I'll add another thing. I think work-life balance also doesn't actually, I think the conversation around vocation is really the conversation. It's not career like even when you talk about it, like oh i'm i'm not satisfied in my job you actually haven't you need to zoom out this is my opinion um <laughs> preachy uh but but i think vocation is a very whole it, to me is a much more holistic word like what who, who are you called to be in your life and that's something that's going to wrap the whole thing because you know what's work-life balance look like for a stay-at-home mom you know i mean that's not I, like if if we're framing it that way that's not even a fair comparison um i don't think and maybe you can speak to that, but I, I think I think if you actually zoom out and say like vocation is 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 a word that looks at your entire life. Who are you called to be as a person in, as a person in your family unit? Who are you called to be as a person in the working world? You're going to change jobs. You're going to change positions throughout life. Like as you as you plug in or as you plug along, we're um, going to be so, so zoom out and actually as you examine yourself, think about um, what what are the what are the building blocks of that? Like what does that look like? to frame who I'm supposed to be as a person across every sphere of life. You know, write that definition, not write, don't write, I want to be CEO. Um. I, would, I, could yeah. um, I would say it also includes a proper view of rest and resting well. Um, so this school year has been my first year back in the official workforce as a teacher, and I had been a stay-at-home mom full-time for years before that. And I remember, uh, so like Riley alluded to, there's really difficult to find the life-work balance when you live at your job and, you know, your clients live with you and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so I remember my husband giving me time to say, hey, you need to go away, you need to go do some, you know, go skiing by yourself, you know, take some time for yourself. And, you know, at first you're like, oh, this is great. This is going to be restful or whatever. But I would get to the point where I wouldn't even want to leave because I had to come back. And the work was still there. 
And so I wasn't resting well. I didn't have a proper view of what it meant to rest. And, you know, I think it, it just, I wasn't resting in the Lord. I was resting in who I thought I was based on what I did. And so when I left the work at my house and came back and it was still there, I was identifying as who, as what I did is who I was. And so, yeah, I think, I think we need to uh, think about what it looks like to really rest, to, to be recharged, to go back to work. And kind of on a different note, um, because I do have young, two young children at home, um, I feel like that has made me a more productive worker. When I'm at work, I am working. <laughs> you know, I'm not um, hanging out by the water cooler. We don't have one. But, <laughs> you know, whatever that looks like. For us, you know, I do take time to socialize with um, my coworkers and whatnot, but I have a, a like a deadline almost every day because I can't take my work home, which is really common for teachers to take, to take work home. Um, so it's just changed my focus during the day, too, to get the work done during the day so I can have proper rest at night and on the weekend. Yeah, I was going to say when I think when we start to feel like our work-life balance is threatened or it's out of whack, I think it makes me think that we need to ask ourselves, like, what idol is being threatened right now um, if it feels so out of whack? And so I think more often than not, I think the struggle, there is a tension. We're either working too much or we feel entitled to more of this life balance, and I think like for me as being a stay-at-home mom, it's easy to start falling into these traps of these entitlements. And it's like the comfort idol that's being threatened. Like I'm not getting enough rest. She's not sleeping in the day. She's not sleeping in the night. Um, and so really I think where we discern that and Riley said the resources, we have to have a community. If you're married, we have to have a spouse that's willing to ask us the hard questions or we're willing to ask the hard questions and we're open if our spouse is talking to us about working too much. If you're not married, then I think we have to be vulnerable and hear what our roommates are saying or hear what our family is saying. Is it too much work and they never see us, but that's the idol that's being threatened and you don't want it taken away. You're holding so tightly to too much work. Or on the other side, is it the idol of this Denver is this, I feel like there's so many jokes, like everyone leaves their job at Friday at two o'clock. And there's this idea that there's this entitlement of so much recreation and rest. And so it is attention, but asking yourself, am I feeling this? Am I feeling that work life is so out of balance? Am I seeking this higher calling of work life balance because I have an idol that's always being threatened? And what is it? Um, so we talked a, a fair amount about the, the negative side, the mundane side of our work. What if we flip that and say, okay, what if you really enjoy the job that you do? Um, you, you, you look forward to going most days, most of the tasks you do. And some of you already alluded to this, but how do we keep from having our, our fundamental identity, understanding who we are, wrapped up in our job title, where our office is, what our salary is, what, what that income allows us to do? How do we, we still pursue excellence in that work and enjoy it, but at the same time not let it define us in a, in a fundamental way? I have a really high salary as a stay-at-home <laughs> mom, so I'm just not going to talk at this one. 
Yeah, I would I would say I love my job right now, and but if I were to base um, my value or what I thought of my job based on the feedback I got from 10, 11, and 12-year-olds, you know, I'd be miserable <laughs> all the time. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. No. <laughs> you just can't, yeah, you can't base it on feedback because that it'll just never be enough. You'll have to keep finding the next thing and the next thing. Um, it'll get worse. <laughs> so, the seat. <laughs> no. uh, you know, I mean, I think it ebbs and flows. It, it should probably ebb and flow. Um, I'd say a couple things have been really good for me. Um, I, having disciplines in your life um, that are, uh, that ground you in, uh, in scripture and in prayer and in continual confession um, is just really, really important. And, and I think it's one of the, uh, whether, regardless of whichever industry you're in, whatever you do, one of the great dangers is that you start to find your worth in your work. And, and I, think that's, um, uh, I think that's part of the curse of work, right, is that it starts to become to us something that it was never intended to be. Um, and then I think the other thing I'd say is just good community, um, being really purposeful about being in good community uh, where you're able to talk about those things and process those things. Uh, but I, I think just really practically, you, you have to push back against that even when things are going really, really well. I'm, yeah, I'm thinking of, um, you know, was it Chariots of Fire? And he says, the, the guy's runner, and he says, when I run, it gives him pleasure. And he's, like, smiling, and he's really good at what he does. And I think um, I, I think there are, there are those moments, and, I, I mean, it's like you're in the zone or you're, I mean, for me, it's like creative problem solving and I, I get to meet with entrepreneurs. I get to do all these different things and we're like looking at a problem or doing all this. And for me, that's like, it's fun. You know, you, you find you can do something for like hours and not, not realize that, that, um, that, that like all that much time has passed because you kind of just wake up from that and go like, wow, we just, and the you know, whiteboard's full or your spreadsheet's full or whatever it is. And, um, and, and I think, I think at that moment, you kind of have a choice. You can say, like, that was fun because I'm good at it and it's me. Or you can recognize that, like, that's, what a gift. Like, what a, what a gift that I was in this room with these people or whatever. And I, I think, you know, I, I personally wouldn't say that I've, I've been very successful in my life. I think I've, I've had some success, but also so much of, of what, I have what we have is, is gift, um, something we, we haven't haven't earned. Um, is, you know where we were born, or you know the homes we were born into, all that kind of stuff. How much college debt we had to take on, all, all, all the circumstances. I just I, I'm I'm very acutely aware of how much my life is a gift, and so in those moments, I find that to be really helpful to say like, man, what a gift it is to be in this moment at this time. And so for me, that's like a helpful discipline and a helpful context to have.
Yeah, I was going to say being able to practice gratitude so when you're in it, you recognize that this is a gift that's been given from God and it's okay to be grateful and to practice it and to want to say it out loud. My husband often says, like, I'm really thankful for my job. And he's not saying, this is the best job I've ever had. I'm so happy and fulfilled. I'm changing the world and I'm really passionate. But he's saying, I'm really grateful for it. And I'm able to say I'm really grateful for it too, just bad and different circumstances and same I feel grateful that I can stay at home right now it's a privilege to have a job if you are one who loves your job right now or is not discontent where you're at that is a privilege and it is a gift so are you going to practice gratitude and then is that a signpost for pointing back to God or are we pointing it back to ourselves thinking I love my job because I'm so good at it or coming home thinking I love my job because I got, made my bonus today or I love my job because Chloe slept all day and didn't throw any Cheerios on the ground like wow this is a great job but more just practicing gratitude and making sure that these seasons of goodness we're pointing it back to God not on ourselves because the season will come when we're not liking our job and we're not feeling grateful but if we're in the habit of practicing gratitude we have to see it throughout all of the seasons, not just the ones where things are going swimmingly well. So I should add, you know, I do love my job, but this year I, I did, I am teaching chemistry physics, and I was an English major. And there have just been so many ridiculous things that have happened because of that. Um, but wonderful things, all learning, educational things. Um, so, so as Brian said earlier in the opening, um, I am free to do that job because it does not define me. I am free to stand up in front of a group of 5th, 6th, and 7th graders and talk about chemistry, even though when I took it in college, I left crying every day. Okay? I am free to do that job and love it because it does not tell me who I am and what my worth is, and that has made it fun and enjoyable. So. Tagging on to that, how are we supposed to deal with failure? Either, either on a, a micro level, so like the small things that don't go the, the way that we expect them to, and on a macro level, maybe a career decision has just fallen flat after 10, 15 years. Um, as being defined by the gospel, by the love of Christ, what do we do with failure? Um, I, was, I was really uh, excited um, when so you know Brian during his sermon on Sunday was talking about I don't we were at the five o'clock I don't know, his sermons sometimes change from I hear from from uh, one service to another but he he was talking about um, it you know the only the only uh, thing in the universe that can know everything is God and that's that's a non-transferable thing where even when we get to this new city we're gonna get to continue learning and. Um, I think, I think for me, I was really encouraged by that because I think I enjoy learning, but when I think about failures, like those are the things where I've learned the most. Those are the things where I've grown the most. And so failure can also be this, failure is a two-sided word, you know? And so like, I think there's, you have to, humility is really important um, when approaching a failure because if, if your whole identity is wrapped up in whether or not something works, um, it's, it's going to be really terrible whether or not you get a good grade or you get a good, you know, review. Um, I'd, I started this job 
Um, I'm just going to, whatever. Sorry, guys. Um, but I started this job, you know, a few years ago, and I, I, was, I was there for like a month or two, and I, I was working with my direct boss, and like, like a month or two in, I, his boss, like our VP, calls me in and is like, hey, we have to lay some people off, and your name's on that list. And I'm like, I just got here. What's going on? And he's like, yeah, you, everyone says you're not doing your job. You're pretty terrible, all this stuff. And um, I was like, it was just, I was really blown away because I thought, I, here I was, I thought I was doing the thing I was supposed to do. And I, to me, that was like crushing because uh, that's not who I am. You know, I, I work hard. I do all this stuff. So to me, that would be like a huge failure. Like, oh, I, I failed to represent myself well in, in the circumstance. Um, I, f I failed to appeal to the right people and all that kind of stuff. And it was an opportunity to learn and grow. And, you know, I didn't lose my job and they gave me, they gave me the chance and things went really well after that. But I think that learning and that growth is something that we're going to have the whole for all of eternity. And so if we reframe, reframe that failure and yeah, it's, it's hard and it's crushing and it's not fun to come home and tell your wife like, ah, I just got told that my name was on that list. Um, but it's also an opportunity then to kind of take the next step. Yeah, I think it also depends on how you define success and failure. And failure sounds, you know, so definite and, oh, this is the end. But in reality, a lot of times those we do make mistakes and we need to confess that or, you know, ask for forgiveness from a coworker, whatever it is. We're not perfect by any means, but it's through those times that we we do learn or we are humbled. We realize, hey, I was really looking for my identity in this one thing and I failed to get that. And it's crushing me so much because I was putting too much worth there. And in reality, that's not the ultimate thing that matters. And so I think we have to use those as opportunities to reframe what we're defining success and failure as. We're almost out of time, so I want to give each of you just like two minutes to one, say, in the whole discussion of how do we image God well in the work that we do, what does that look like for you stepping into your jobs? And then two, I know some of you brought books and notes and other things that have been helpful for you along your, your journeys in this process. Um, so anything else you want to share about a book you've read, quotes, passages, whatever else. Um, so why don't we just go down the line and everybody take two minutes and just walk through that. Okay, I don't know how long two minutes is, but um, I think just how do we image God in our work? That's There's so many different answers to that, and what's awesome is each one of us is going to do that really differently, but I think seeing the people around you flourish is really the most important thing you can do. I have the opportunity to mentor girls that are younger than me and you know lead a team, and so when you see those people doing things that they didn't think they could do or you're working for their good so that, I mean, I'm also about eight and a half months pregnant here, so I'm passing on my entire job to other people and just feeling like, hey, I want them to do it better than I'm doing it right now and not being selfish about who's going to get the credit or anything like that, which is always a temptation, but just really to see the people around you reach their potential is so great and you can serve people in that and I think for me, um, the Dorothy Sayers, Why We Work, um, 30 short pages is really helpful. Um, what was the other 
That was it. And, <laughs> yeah, so those are things. And I also, if you haven't read it, The Every Good Endeavor. So that would be my pitch. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I, I get to meet with people. I mean, so much of my job right now is just meeting with people, and I don't have an operating role anywhere. We're just investing, and so um, minim minimal operational overhead. Um, and so the the cool thing there is it's it's all about meeting and then when we invest in a company, it's about serving that company and, and um, servicing that investment and trying to provide value. Um, and and that that to me has been this tremendous opportunity um, to to actually come alongside people who are taking tremendous risk um, you know, we work with early stage companies primarily, and so they're they maybe don't even have a ton of revenue, um, and so these people they might have a family, they might not, but they might have school debt, that kind of thing, and they're kind of going out on it. So it's really fun to come alongside those people who are in this really vulnerable stage um, and state, and that that's been that's been a really fulfilling and cool thing for me. I, I think, um, yeah, it's just. But so much of it is it's easy to focus in those relationships on the transactional nature in order for me to feel like I get the bat the the badge or the gold star or whatever I need to be I need to make successful investments and um, you know ultimately it's about the people and the relationships and even if all that money goes away which sounds horrible and it's complete opposite of what my job right now is um, but even if all that goes away those people will will still be there and that that's really important and so how do you get into a headspace where you feel that way? Um, I think there's all kinds of great resources. I would definitely start with every good endeavor. I think Visions of Vocation is kind of like a good next step, and there's um, a tremendous world of, of books and things from there. If you really want to kind of get into like a mental headspace about like culture change, I think To Change the World by James Davison Hunter uh, is has been a big thing for me. Um, so, that, yeah, I'll stop there. Um, I think if we ask the question, how do we image God in our work? I think it's recognizing that we're called to serve where we're at. And I think there was so many of the questions that were, I don't like my job. My job seems beneath me. What if I'm a cashier forever? What if I'm doing peas and Cheerios forever? Um, and I think what's been most helpful for me in this arena is this book, Made for More. Um, it's upstairs, and it was written by... The speaker we had at our women's conference, Hannah Anderson, and something that she just spoke to, and it's actually something that um, I, I heard last fall, Jenny Brown got to just give this example in gospel rhythms of what does it look like when we're doing mundane tasks day in and day out, we're imaging Christ, and so if, if we're feeding our kids all day or we're feeding um, and here she talks about if you're working in the cafeteria or you are a cashier or you are a waitress we feed because Jesus feeds us we're washing because Jesus is washing us um, and one of the quotes I wrote down is that um, forms to be filed floors to be mopped are not barriers to self-fulfillment they're opportunities to serve just like Christ serves us and so I think the majority of us likely in our jobs right now, as I look out across the room and maybe for a good chunk of our career, are going to feel like we're just serving others or we're struggling because it feels like this is a barrier to my self-fulfillment. I don't want to be the cashier or the peas person or whatever it is that your job is right now. 
but recognizing that's never going to end because Christ never stops serving us, and so we can't ever stop serving regardless of what the career or the job looks like right now. And so I'd highly recommend this book. It's not just for women, even though it has a bird on it. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I don't know, cover it up or just read it in secret. But um, Guys don't read bird books, he says. Yeah. So just to, I mean, to wrap up my whole thought is, is that we're imaging Christ as we're serving others in our job. And so we feed because he feeds us. We wash because he washes us day in and day out. And to ever think that we'll get away from that is a lie. We're saying, I don't want to carry my cross anymore, but we're called to carry it every single day. Um, yeah. And so to find fulfillment in that knowing we're bearing God's image, we're not bearing our own image it's relieving if we could all get to that place of believing that is true. Um, yeah, so I would just end with, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's always this hidden life of any job that you do that you don't really know about until you're in it and doing it. And you're like, Oh, here's the, the mundane gritty stuff of this job. And you know, that is certainly true in my job with either teaching classes that I wouldn't normally want to teach and doing grading and, you know, kind of explaining things for the hundredth time and trying to come up with new ways to explain things. And then also at my other vocation, which is a mom, you know, we, we have this laundry issue at our house that just never goes away. And it's, it's a problem. And, yeah. And when Hannah Anderson came to speak, that was my question. I was like, yeah, that's great. What about the laundry? <laughs> I don't get it. And, and the way she described it, I, I love, she said that, when she does something like laundry or the, just the mundane part of your day job, she says, I like to think that I'm pushing back on the chaos and establishing order. And, and I, I just love that. And that has just really changed how I view the mundaneness of teaching and just the mundaneness of, of being at home with kids, too. Um, it's a great book. So everybody should read Hannah Anderson's book, Made for More. Um, uh, I, I'd say a couple things, and I, just book-wise, um, uh, there's great stuff. So go up to the bookshelf. There's a ton of stuff. Um, I'm reading David Brooks' new book, uh, The Road to Character. Um, it's an amazing book that is not a vocation book, but um, uh, speaks very much to vocation. So I'd recommend that, too. You know, uh, I talked earlier about um, The Great Invitation is come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, leads us into the great commandment, right? Which is to love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love people. And when, when you think about living into your vocational calling, think about it in that context, that it starts first with my engagement with Christ as my Savior, my engagement with him, um, in those daily disciplines and in those um, rhythms of confession and assurance of pardon in our lives that then empowers me to love God and love people through the work that I do. So you, you are God's plan for redemption for all that he has created through the work of your hands. So, you know, how do you stay? I don't remember exactly how the question was worded, but how, how, do, you know, how do you live into that? How do you live that out? 
stay focused on that in your vocation. Think of it in those terms, um, that he has one plan. There's one plan A, right, to redeem all that he created is the work of the hands of his people. So, That's great. Um, let's give a hand to our speakers. Reminder, we do have the Tim Keller book that's been referenced about 300 times over the past two nights. Um, on sale for $10 at the back table. Um, and that's all we have. Thank you guys for coming. Erica, would you close us out in prayer? Yeah. For tonight? Lord, we're thankful that you call us to image you, that you created us in your image, and that we don't have to be left on our own to image ourselves or go find where our identity could be made up. And so, Lord, I just pray um, over us in this room and over this church as we're sent out into the city, and um, we're thankful, God, that you call us to work and that you work and that um, you've called us to work where we're at. So I just pray, God, for faithful um, service from these people. I pray, God, that when our coworkers see us, if it's in our homes, if it's our employees, our clients, whoever it is, God, that we're interacting with, that the gospel would make more sense to them because they would see how we're working and that they would um, believe that we're imaging God um, just by the way that we show up. So I pray for a change, for a shift to happen in how we're viewing our work. I pray for real um, challenges, um, that we would accept the challenges. I pray, God, for vulnerability and just um, that we'd lean into this community, but more so, God, that our hearts would just be changed as we recognize that we're called to be image bearers of you and that is where our identity is. God, would you just shape us and mold us that we'd believe that and that the culture would change um, and that it could even just start here with the people here in this room um, from what we've heard the last two nights. We're grateful, Lord, and we just pray and ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.